0: Welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And we have a really special guest sitting in our couch today. Her name is Jen. She's an RMT. Amanda is sitting over there in a chair giving me this look like, should I introduce myself now?
1: <laughs> That's not the look I was giving you. I was, I was enjoying the show. Typically, I talk way too much and you talk not enough. So when you're talking, I'm I'm chilling. I'll just sit here in the captain chair. You go ahead. Do your thing. You're done. All right. Of course you're done. Mm -hmm. Hey, everyone. It's Amanda. And as Mark said, we have Jennifer here. Jennifer Fleming, who's been at RMT for 10 years. And her and I met, um, I think off mic, we decided it was roughly three, three and a half years ago when she took a business course through Connet Institute Mm -hmm. that I was instructing uh, with Mark alongside me as well.
0: Probably didn't say too much in that. You
1: probably didn't say too much in that. (laughs) And um, one thing that I remember about her, her from all those years ago is that she had a cool concept with the way that she structured her practice and really was focusing on psychology and the, you know, the sort of the psychosocial aspect of the biopsychosocial model that most of us have adopted and accepted. And, Um, I just thought it was really interesting that she was focusing so heavily on that when I think a lot of RMTs I was meeting around that time were so focused on fine-tuning their skills and learning new modalities in terms of affecting physical change, but weren't really considering the psychological and the social aspects, but Jennifer was, even all those years ago. So um, thank you for coming in today and hanging out with us. Thanks for having me. And the reason that we asked uh, Jennifer to come in today is because she's recently started. Started, um doing more stuff on social media, doing some Facebook Lives or videos, and um, a blog that she's written for, for her clients, like more educational stuff for the general public, to in hopes to elevate the profession a little bit, to let people know what registered massage therapy is and what we do and what a professional therapist looks like and sounds like and all that jazz, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Am I doing, am I yeah. doing you justice here?
2: <laughs> yeah, so far, that's pretty good. I um, I started, oh uh, I, I can't even remember when I started my blog, probably about a year ago, very haphazardly kind of hit and miss here and there. But what I decided was, one, I wanted to try and educate the public a little bit more because I've believed very firmly for a long time that knowledge is power the more the more you know about yourself the more empowered you can be in the decisions that you're making for yourself and uh, our bodies tend to be treated like this mysterious thing that you just happen to have around with you and nobody really pays a lot of attention to the how what and why of their own vessels so Uh, weird right right it's bizarre (laughs) like it's it's your most constant companion and the most easily ignored um so I started trying to write about (laughs) ways of educating uh the public and then also was thinking you know do do the people who come into my treatment room, know why myself and my colleagues are different from masseurs or masseuses, why the education that we have might matter, um, you know, what makes a professional a professional, especially within the healthcare field. Um, So I started trying to focus more on that aspect of, of massage therapy for educating the public. Okay. So
1: did you, how did you how did you decide on the topic of your first blog? Were you talking to clients, talking to the public? Was it an all-out rant? Hmm, Tell about to, that.
2: <laughs> I have to think about what even was my... I don't even remember what my first blog was. But I think the, one that, the first one that was probably the most important to me was uh, discussing informed consent. Um, and this... Probably happened around the time that the CMTO changed the consent protocols, Hmm. um, which I found honestly kind of amusing because I was like, this is what I already do. Other people aren't doing this. (laughs) Why is that? Um, And so I wrote out what an informed consent process should look like. And I did far more research than would be appropriate for the general public and realized that I had all this content that was not <laughs> at all reasonable to discuss with with the average person. Um, so I decided to just try and break it down into steps and why each element of informed consent was important for the public um, and why it was so important to me as a professional. So is probably the most important blog post to date that I think I've written.
1: Why is it so important to you? Why is informed consent something you have such passion about? You guys should see her like with her (laughs) hands moving. You're really
2: into this. Why? Um, It is really important to me because um, as a professional, probably for a very long time without knowing it in a conscious way, but having an awareness of it, um, trauma-informed practice is, is something that I'm extremely passionate about. Um, and it is so important to me because I live with trauma. So for me, going into a massage therapy clinic, um, going to see a chiropractor, a physical therapist, any of these things is really friggin' hard for me to do because I'm generally walking in going, okay, it's not scary, but it's scary. It's scary, but it's not scary. Um, and I, I get that struggle. Um, there are a lot of people in my life who have, um, serious mental health problems, have, Long histories with trauma and showing up in a professional's office is sometimes one of the hardest things these people will do. And it makes such a big difference when that professional goes, I get it. This is hard. Let's just take our time with it. We'll do as much as we can. Um, And that allows the person on the other side to kind of set the pace and the tone for how this needs to proceed so that they can feel safe. And informed consent. Is how you, as a professional, give the decision-making power to the person who's showing up in your office. Mm -hmm. Um, They've already made a really tough choice to come in and see you. For some people, that can be a very, very difficult choice to make. A lot of people will wait until they're in so much pain that they. It's it's worse to stay in pain than it is to deal with the thing that you're most afraid of. So. Using informed consent, we can kind of honor the process that this person is going through and and recognize, okay, we know that this is tough and I want you to get that I'm on your side. Uh, and informed consent is a really great way to do that. Right. And Well, and like you said, knowledge is power. The more mm-hmm. the person knows and understands like what's
1: going on in their body, what you're there to do, how you're mm-hmm. going to be helping them then the decision to proceed with the treatment or to let you Mm -hmm. come into their space then is a little bit less scary because they know exactly what to expect, exactly what's going on. Go back to trauma-informed practice. This is a term you used with me off mic. What's trauma-informed practice?
2: Trauma-informed practice is um, something that I've been chasing for a couple of years, but not really knowing how, like, not having the verbiage to... Even the words trauma informed practice, I didn't know what that was. Um, but I definitely knew that there are people who do not seek care for like really basic musculoskeletal problems. There's sure they can be really painful, but they're like, you'll get some people that come into your treatment, and you're like, this is so simple. And even though they're in a lot of pain and maybe they're really scared and they're worried about what's going on, you're like, trust me, this is not a big deal at all. There are people who will avoid getting that care. Because the whole process of coming in for care and receiving that care is can be really difficult. So in trauma-informed practice, basically the professional is leaving space for all the other shit that the person is bringing into the room with them to exist in the room with them. The basic principle behind trauma-informed practice is that we do not re-traumatize the person, uh, which requires that you know, again, we let them kind of set a lot of the pacing um, and we keep our boundaries really clear so that they know where they stand. They know where we're standing and they understand what the whole process is going to be like. I only just started pursuing training in trauma-informed practice this year. Um, Laurier University and at the Kitchener uh, campus has um, a trauma certificate. Uh, it is a continuing ed program. Uh, it's run through the social work faculty. So I expect within about a year or so, I should have that certificate complete. The idea behind that is to kind of understand how, how does a professional need to set up their systems in order to be able to receive patients coming in with trauma, because trauma is going to change how your treatment plan works. And I've, I've seen how that can, uh, can go uh, in my own practice. So what sorts of patients do you typically work with? Um, I have a pretty mixed bag. Um, I presently am working in uh, a chiropractor's office, and she. Uh, focuses more on, I guess, like rehab and sports injuries types things. So I do see some of those and admittedly, I'm not great at it. <laughs> um, but the patients that I find I develop the best rapport with are people who are coming in with persisting anxiety problems. Maybe they're dealing with ongoing depression problems. Um, I have had people referred to me for body work, because they're dealing with maybe not necessarily acute trauma, but traumatic histories are revisiting them. Um, And so they're they're looking for care to kind of help them be okay with the feelings that are happening inside their bodies, as well as dealing with just your run-of-the-mill muscle tension, headaches, um, jaw clenching, and all that kind of stuff. Um, Those are the people that I tend, they tend to stick around for a lot longer, um whereas rehab people they kind of they come and go they're a little more transient, they get better and they're gone um but the people that I'm doing more support work for um they are my I've been treating them for the last eight nine ten years of my practice so. okay Where did you go to school? um I went to school at everest actually Brandy John was one of my <laughs> teachers uh, yeah, I just I shout out to brandy to, yeah, I listened to the podcast with her. I guess you guys put it out last week, maybe. Um, Yeah, so I went to Everest uh, in Hamilton, uh, I guess, 12 years ago now since I finished school. Okay. Um, Yeah. Do you recall when you were in school how
1: much we learned about trauma and about so for example I Mm -hmm. remember being in school and being told by the instructors like you know you're going to get clients who cry on your table you Mm -hmm. know the connection between the physical and the mental and the emotional is like so tight that you know you might Mm -hmm. you might get somebody who you know as you're working out musculoskeletal problems have like emotional releases as well like I remember that Mm -hmm. but I don't remember there being much emphasis what about in your
2: Situation. Um, I, uh, I'm sure that somebody mentioned similar kinds of things that these sorts of things can happen. Um, what to do about it, if that happens, um, how to respond. I can't say that it was ever really discussed. Um, I don't know that, I mean, it's not part of the core competencies to, mm-hmm. you know, understand how a person's psychology, um, or social connections can impact their physical health, or how your work on their physical health can be impeded by psychological problems or social connection problems. This is you know ten years ago, um, when I was in school, I feel like if if biopsychosocial was a thing at the time it was like probably whispered in back corners like we should yeah, probably this,
1: focus on this yeah this concept is not yeah. new
2: no the biopsychosocial model was
1: introduced in the late 70s like this is yeah. not a new concept no it just seems to be a very prevalent theme amongst massage therapists right now yeah but i okay i'll take myself as an example probably up until five years ago I was probably the last person you'd come to if you had any kind of problem, if you were going to cry, because I was the person that might take like a ruler and pat you on the <laughs> back and say, it's okay, it's okay. So I mean, having a client break down in my treatment space yeah. because of bringing up past traumas or whatever, I wouldn't have known how to deal with that, deal with that yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, I would say getting older and maybe some of more, my more recent experiences have made me more comfortable dealing with mm-hmm. people and being able to be more empathetic and, you know, sit with Mm -hmm. somebody and let them cry and whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But do you think that this is, you know, something that should be a little more focused on
2: in school? I I think, hmm, I think that... As healthcare providers, and this is this is where I'm totally jumping into opinion land. Um, but it is my opinion that if if one is going to be a healthcare provider, one should have a good grasp of what the full scope of human healthcare includes. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that. Every healthcare provider should be able to practice in every realm. That's of course that's a ridiculous assumption, uh, expectation. But um, but I do think that there's a lot of value in understanding that human beings are biological, psychological, and social creatures. So to have this assumption that all you're doing is slapping around some meat and, you know, sending it on its way is you're missing three quarters or or two thirds of the picture. So is there value in training massage therapists to have a better understanding of how pain might affect a person's psychology, how pain can affect their, uh, their social connections and conversely, how might more serious mental health problems or social problems impact their physical health? Yes, I think that's important. do I think every massage therapist should learn trauma-informed practice? Eh, not really. No. Um, I mean, it, it might be smart to to be able to, at the very minimum, recognize when you are dealing with somebody who's got a whole pile of other problems that that need to be cared for at the same time that you work on their their shoulder pain or, or whatever. Um, and it might be that you're not the right therapist to work with that person, which is totally fine. Mm-hmm. Build your network, find the RMTs who are the right people to work with those persons and send them on their way. But yeah, I, I think that we could be better prepared for those patients that are going to be more challenging. Um, one of the things that I've come to realize, the patients that we might complain about as being really overly picky or really difficult to work with, or they're, they're, they're never satisfied. It's not because they're a jerk. There's something else going on with them, and it's usually they need to be in control of that situation, probably because they're afraid you're going to hurt them. Oh, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, on this podcast a couple
1: of times, spoken about clients that I've had who have just been like a pain in my ass. Yeah, really. totally. Um, but I'm also able to recognize that it's not just that they, you know, want to do things their way and no. they're annoying. It's for some other reason. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who are oh, just no, There's, there's
0: definitely people. There <laughs> yeah, for fucking sure. Fucking jerks. Yeah. But I mean, absolutely. I do know
1: I had this one client I've talked about her a couple of times on the podcast that I think, Deep down in her soul, she was a nice person, but she had a lot of shit and a lot of shit Mm -hmm. happened to her back to back to back. You know, a child with mental illness, um, a relatively like verbally abusive husband. Mm. Um, She's an entrepreneur. She -hmm. had been in multiple accidents, had multiple surgeries. You know, Mm -hmm. all of this shit, of Mm -hmm. course, Mm -hmm. is going to make her A bit more of a, I guess, a harder person. Or even hostile. Yeah. And so she would come in and she'd suck the life out of me. Yep. But there was a part of me that I was like, I just, I feel so much for her that I I would take it. But she really sucked my soul out each and every time she came in. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I, like, I feel if our training programs spent some time talking about psychology and, you know, social connections, um in the general populace, I think it would also give us a better opportunity to talk about how can we establish our boundaries in our practices so that when we are dealing with people that you know, the second they leave, you like have a temper tantrum in your treatment room and you (laughs) want to smash things because, oh my God, this person was so frustrating. Um, There are ways that we can manage them and ourselves so that we don't end up with all of this friction um, between ourselves and our patients of course, it's not always going to be perfect. There will be people you'll eventually just have to say, this is not working. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I can't, you know, I can't afford the cost of my personal health to continue working with you, whatever you need to say. Um, but yeah, there there are there are times when we can acknowledge that there's something else in the room and maybe the conversation will look like Until you've dealt with that other thing, I don't think I can work with you, but here are a couple of social workers or psychologists that might be able to help you out. In the same way that you might refer somebody who's got a pelvic floor floor issue if you're not Trained to help them deal with public floor issues,
0: right? I think th- I think this does happen in schools. By the way, there's room for this in the curriculum, and it does exist. I think a mm. big part of it is when you're a student in your massage therapy school, you don't give a fuck about this.
1: This could be true too. Well, that's probably very true because yeah. you're thinking about. Um, w- did we talk what about this on about? mic now or not? <laughs> like I don't even remember now because we've had so many people in and out of the office today. But when we were talking about the fact that a lot of RMTs really just want to focus on learning like new technical skills and when you're a student that is what you're focused on you're focused on learning Mm -hmm. how to properly do massage therapy Mm
2: -hmm.
1: all of the other aspects are
2: not i've written
0: curriculum this stuff exists in curriculum Hmm. it definitely does Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: i remember somebody else i was speaking to um and, and this might like this is something else that i've said in in forums that a lot of the issues that I may be observing within our profession are actually cultural problems. they you know, the, the issues that a lot of us struggle with when it comes to boundaries isn't because we didn't get adequate training when we were in massage school. It's because mm-hmm. our boundaries were probably trampled a lot when we were children by adults who never had their own boundaries respected and so on and so forth. And as we go forward, we either develop boundaries that are so rigid that nobody can get in and we are these impenetrable people and brittle. Or we end up being people who have very wishy-washy boundaries and people can kind of walk all over us. There's a lot of discomfort in in our culture around saying no to things and the perception of being rude. Boundaries often get perceived as somebody is being rude when in actuality somebody's just saying, I don't want to put up with that crap. Like, take it somewhere else. So, I mean, for me to complain about this stuff not being taught well in school is kind of doing a disservice because... This is thi- these are things that we should be learning when we're knee high, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 they're not easy to teach, especially if you haven't had enough time and personal, you know, exchange and education with others to have found comfort with your own boundaries. Um, so you know, it's it's sort of it's not the college's fault. Could it be there? Sure, but people should also be able to arrive having already. Established a, a reasonable foundation of what their boundaries are.
1: I heard on the radio recently that uh, apparently um, Canadians are becoming less polite. Like okay. you know how Canadians are Good always for known us. for being polite, but <laughs> but the um the whole thing was not, you know, not that we're less polite, like we're not saying like please and thank you and sorry like we always do. <laughs> uh-huh. But I think it is that um setting boundaries is something that is it's exactly as you said people perceive it as somebody being rude. Mm-hmm. Like I think the only people I've ever even heard use the term I know my boundaries or I set boundaries are people that are probably perceived as being mm-hmm a little bit of a fucking jerk because they Mm -hmm. know what they will and will not take and anything else like nope sorry no 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 yeah
2: yeah and we're not uh and again opinion land but we're not prepared very well to deal with and cope with rejection um we are not prepared very well to deal with when we're not going to get our way that creates all kinds of problems that we see all over the place, right, right up to, you know, road rage, like traffic is traffic. It took me almost an hour and a half to get to Toronto from Hamilton this morning. I left after rush hour. Yeah. But when does that actually end? Like I don't think maybe nine PM. If you're traveling in the middle of the night, you're good to go. If you're in Toronto,
1: it's not rush hour. Like it's, it's this is just the way yeah, that the city functions. Exactly.
2: And you know, you can either be sitting in your car freaking out and changing lanes like crazy and you know, incrementally getting ahead, and then you realize that the pastry truck you passed 20 minutes ago, how the hell did they get up there? That I just passed that truck. So, I mean, it's, it's, and instead, if you can just kind of accept like, okay, I'm not going to get my way today. I'm not going to make it to Toronto in an hour. Uh, It's going to take me 90 minutes. All right. Then, and that's just the, what it is. And instead of arguing with it, if we can try and practice, you know, turning the volume up on your heavy metal or whatever you're listening to in your (laughs) truck and, you know, enjoy the time you've got, then things can be. Um, easier to to cope with. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go back to your blog for a little bit. Mm-hmm.
1: What what is it that you want the public, or how do you want the public to view massage therapy as a profession?
2: I would like the public to see that um, body work does not have to just be um, this nice treat that you give yourself once every six years or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just Pampering, you know, there's sort of this idea about self care. It's all bubble baths and getting your nails done, and I don't know, chocolate and stuff, um, which <laughs> is nice. I mean, it's nice to be, you know, extra nice with yourself, but sometimes self care is doing your taxes. In fact, more often than not, self care is doing your taxes and, you know, your laundry, uh, making sure that you're clean. Um, and when you're dealing with health concerns that you cannot just manage on your own going to the doctor asking for help um seeing the appropriate healthcare providers so that they can get you past that point so i would love it if the public could see massage therapists first of all as allies in their healthcare i would love it if the public could see massage therapists as professionals i feel that there's a a difference in perception between, you know, uh, um, going to the spa or the esthetician, and I'm certainly not knocking RMTs who work in those settings, like by all means, there's there's a a place for that. Um, But it would be nice to be, regardless of the setting that a person is working in, to be perceived as this person is a healthcare provider, I'm coming to them because I need help with my health. And there's a certain expectation of what kind of standard of care should I be receiving here personally thinking from my own perceptions I would love it if massage therapists could be seen as not scary (laughs) that would be that would be good I think do you think a lot of people perceive us as scary I have no idea I have no idea but I I know I I might think that a massage therapist is scary and somebody with uh, similar histories to mine Mm -hmm. uh, may also arrive at that same conclusion that going so you're talking about like the
1: people you're trying to attract you know these people who have dealt with or are dealing with trauma totally you want Them to understand, like, I am here to help you Mm -hmm. in whatever way you need me to. Mm -hmm. So, if you need me to back off, I'll back Mm -hmm. off. If you need me to, then so you're appealing to a very specific demographic in this blog that you're writing.
2: Yeah, for sure. I am writing for the anxious, depressed, hurting person who is really tired of hurting all the time and would love to be able to just show up somewhere and dump the baggage for an hour and receive a kind of care that actually helps them feel better in as many different ways that they need to feel better as possible. Um, so in in my, like, as I said, in my practice, the people I'm really trying to draw in are the people who are dealing with a lot of anxiety and depression, um, who maybe have histories with trauma. And knowing that, one, we don't have to talk about that hard stuff. Like that's out of my my wheelhouse. We're not gonna talk about your fear. You're not a psychotherapist. No, so we're not gonna talk about these things, but if they are there... And we both realize that they are in the way of some of the goals that we have established as a massage therapist working with their patient, then I can help them navigate that, whether that means finding another professional to support them with those other issues um, or encouraging them to, uh, you know, focus on what we're doing in the moment instead of, you know, the da-da-da-da-da-da-da that's going on in their heads. That would be the way that I work. So when I'm writing in my blog, um, what I'm trying to do is establish, this is the standard that I set for myself. Um, this is what you can expect from me. You can, this is it. Like, this is what you're going to get when you come to my office. Um, and so that's what I'm really trying to do with that blog. That's sort of how I'm working with my blog. Um, presently with some of the other stuff that I'm trying to move towards in professional development, like I'm taking this training in trauma-informed practice. The goal for that is to develop trauma-informed massage therapy training um, for other massage therapists who are like, I want to work with these populations as well, but I don't know how to do it so that I'm safe and they're safe and everybody's safe in the treatment room and things can go as smoothly as possible. What I'm starting to try to sort out now is... how how do I start building that do I need to have a different blog under a totally different name Um, and I've started talking about some of these things on my social media aimed more at my my peers Um, so last month I was talking about how can we better handle sexual assault disclosures in our treatment rooms not because this person is being sexually assaulted in the moment though perhaps that could be the case, but more when somebody shows up with this other history and they say, this is difficult for me because I have this particular history, we can make room for that. And we may have to adapt the way we work with people because of these other problems Mm -hmm. in the same way we might have to adapt working with somebody who has a serious neurological condition. Um, you know, you may not be able to perform the kind of treatment that you would on somebody whose body functions as expected. So I did that last last month. And this month, I uh, May is Sexual Assault Prevention Awareness Month. So I've been talking on my social media about um, preventing sexual assault in clinical settings, but mostly from the perspective of how can therapists protect themselves. Um, this is something I feel isn't Often talked about um i don't I didn't feel like while we talked about it in school, I certainly was not at all prepared, and again, cultural problems you know, I can't expect my teachers to do the work that my parents maybe should have um but uh I feel this is common. You see it in the forums. Somebody will post a terrible story of a patient who is really inappropriate with them and they don't know what to do. And I'm like, we should know what to do. Like, this is something that we should know how to deal with. And we should know how to set things up so that we don't run into these problems. And there are behaviors that we can adopt. And there are ways that we can um, talk about what we do. There are ways we can market ourselves. There There are ways that we can interact with our patients that make it very clear that is not going to happen in this treatment room. Mm -hmm. And if it does, you are ejected immediately and I'm not going to be nice and cuddly about it. So when I first started practicing, um, I inherited a client that there, there was just no opportunity at all for me to set any boundaries, even if I'd known how to set them properly. And for a year, this person's behavior escalated and escalated and escalated to the point where I was sexually assaulted and I was having panic attacks the night before having to treat this person. And, you know, I I finally fe- realized like I have to kick them out. Like I can't, I can't work like this. This isn't okay. And I I really didn't know how to do it. Um, And I certainly didn't know how to prevent that from happening in the first place. So I've been doing, uh, I've I've done one video so far on, you know, how can we establish some of our boundaries to set up how our therapeutic and professional relationships are going to happen in our treatment rooms. Um, And through the rest of May, I'll be talking more about how can RMTs behave in ways that make it very clear that this is just not going to happen in the treatment room? Um, and since I've started adopting these behaviors and have changed how I act, how, right to how I dress with my patients, um, it's not an issue uh, and hasn't been for seven or eight years. Where where previously it was a much more common problem. What are
0: you doing differently now?
2: Um, so when I first came out. Uh, you know, into the field. Um, th- this was, I don't know if this is a problem that every massage therapist has. I've certainly heard other RMTs talk about it in um, feeling like you get bullied by your patients. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to get on the table. Mm-hmm. Give me my 60 minutes of touch my body. Um, and I th- maybe that is a really common problem. And that right there, you've lost, you've lost it. You've lost the opportunity to say, no, no, this is how this relationship functions. These are the things that I do because I am a healthcare provider. And these are the requirements of me as a massage therapist. Um, So that's the first thing that you have to really address. And that was something that I did not do very well. Um, I didn't use my treatment planning. Um, I didn't use full consent with the understanding that When I am laying out my treatment plan, what I'm actually communicating is, this is what I am okay with doing. What is on the table is what I am okay with doing. If you don't see it on the table, there's a good chance that I'm not okay with doing that. And uh So you can use your treatment planning and your informed consent in order to establish what your boundaries are. These are the things that I am okay to say yes to. Um, And that wasn't, I didn't understand it that way at all. I don't think I'd ever had anybody presented to me that way. Um, So
0: what was your understanding of it then?
2: um, I would say at the time, my understanding of consent was quite literally, this is the checklist of things Mm. to do so that I pass my test. Um, and when you got out there into the field, I'd have my checklist and the person's half naked and on the table. I'm like, shit, uh, this is okay. I guess we're good. (laughs) Um, and so changing that dynamic and making it very clear, this is my treatment room. This is my space. And I'm the one who's going to determine, um, how these things flow, you are the boss of your body, but I'm the boss of the rest of this space. Um, And while you will certainly communicate with me about how I'm allowed and not allowed to interact with your physical self, I'm the boss of determining how you can behave in my personal space, because this is where I work. I have every right to be safe where I work, and it's my job to make me safe where I work. Um, None of that made sense to me, you know, ten years ago, so after that experience with that uh, that one client, um I completely changed my intake process. I made everybody sit down and we would talk about consent. I made everybody sign a document that was my zero tolerance policy, and if somebody seemed like they were gonna cross that line, we would read it out loud together <laughs> the next appointment.
0: What would make you be with someone and say, "Yeah, we're reading this out loud together
2: um that's. Yeah, that's a tough question to answer because sometimes it can be really subtle. It can be subtle
1: body language. It can be the way they address you. I had Mm -hmm. a client who called me sweetheart.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Which is not okay. Yeah. He wouldn't say that if you were a dude. Well, and would you
1: ever go to your doctor? Hey, sweetheart.
2: No. Yeah. I hope not.
1: So I did have to have that awkward conversation. And I am the exact type of person you're talking about that culturally, Mm -hmm. I don't like confrontation. Mm -hmm. I don't like like awkward conversations. Mm -hmm. I'm getting better at it, I Mm -hmm. guess. But Mm -hmm. no, I don't like doing that. And I Mm -hmm. had to tell this guy, like, you know, I know that you don't mean anything by it. I know your intent is not to be offensive Mm -hmm. to me. Mm. But can you not refer to me as sweetheart, especially yeah. out in the waiting room with all the other practitioners and the clients yeah. and whatever? I'm like, yeah, just use my name, please.
2: Yes. Yeah. Well, and that that's exactly it. And it can be like you said, body language, um, the way when somebody is giving you the eyes you know, you know that somebody's looking at you like they like what they see. And um, while we can't necessarily be policing the way people look at you with their eyeballs, um, that's a sign that this person is already thinking about you in a context that doesn't fit with the therapeutic relationship. And so when you, you don't necessarily point it out, but when you bring it out into the open and say, but, and also, These are the things that do not happen in my treatment room ever, and I have fired clients on the spot for this kind of behavior. They know right away, caught, she saw it, and I'm not getting away with it. Um, And it's not always easy to do, right? Like, maybe it's different for men. I've never been a man. But as a (laughs) woman, um, we tend to kind of default as sexual prey, And so when we're in these treatment rooms, you know, with a closed door and there's there's a person in the room and they're giving you the eyes, you have to let that idea go that you need to be demure, that you need to kind of duck your head and, um, you know, try to discourage something by pretending that it's not there. And instead you look it in the face and you're like, yeah, this isn't okay. So your options are cut that out and we're going to do our work or you find another therapist, there's a list on the CMTO website. I will help you find it. <laughs> um, and it's not like, it's not easy to do. It's confrontational, but these are our spaces and it's, it's a worthwhile skill for us to develop. Um So this is one of the things that I'm hoping to try and communicate in some of my social media videos over this month of May, whenever, whenever this podcast comes out, I don't know if it'll be soon or later, but maybe it'll be within it. the month of May. <laughs> okay, there we go. It'll be within the month of May. <laughs> okay. So you also
1: mentioned, like you said, that you're doing stuff for your colleagues as well. So you do stuff mm-hmm. for your clients, you do stuff for your colleagues. Mm-hmm. What sorts of research and education are you trying to get out to your colleagues? Is it all trauma-based or is there any other areas that you've been focusing on? Um,
2: I would... I would say right now, I'm looking a lot at, um, you know, how we can establish our boundaries professionally. Um, and once I've completed more of my training than in, uh, in trauma-informed practice, then yeah, I'll mostly be focusing on, um, trauma, uh, being trauma-informed, or at the very least being sensitive to recognizing when trauma might be in the room with you, um, understanding how to conduct yourself when you're dealing with people who, who may well have uh, mental health problems or even more significant mental, health, mental illnesses, just learning how to be okay. With, with people that might be kind of weird <laughs> from time to time.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of it is just having exposure to it. And we, <laughs> we try to do our part. I don't know if you've heard our series. We did a series on mental health. And it, no. was, all, it was all about people and their stories. Mm, and, and, yeah. and when I dropped it into Facebook groups, it was pretty much like, you never know what a patient is going through. Totally. Listen, listen to this. You have no
1: idea. Right? Yeah,
0: yeah, And like, we've done that with um, the recovering crack alcoholic guy too, right? Mm. So mm. yeah, we, we, we try to make that stuff available. Available because the in my mind one of the best ways is to be familiar, mm-hmm. understand, hear mm-hmm. some of the stories, understand what someone's going through, yeah. hear it from their perspective, yeah. not a textbook, not something you see on TV, yeah. not no. an academic journal. But empathy, yeah. I
1: don't think, is something you can't learn empathy from a textbook. No. You can't you can't learn <laughs> yeah. how to relate to people no. on their level no. th- from a textbook. But I, yeah.
0: well, that's that's exactly what I mean. Like when we had Anne-Marie on and Anne-Marie suffers from severe depression. She's had many suicide attempts and this Mm -hmm. all started from being sexually abused as a child, Mm -hmm. right? Now I can read about sexual abuse yeah. and and everything else in a, in a textbook or a journal but until like I sat down with her yeah. and she was just she was nice enough to be very candid and open about yeah. stuff that's when I was like holy fuck yeah
2: it it right? totally changes your perspective and yeah. as a healthcare per- like I had a patient um sometime last year and she you know was uh, a refugee Um, she had been, uh, I think in Kosovo during the wars in the nineties, uh, and she was a little girl then. So, you know, I almost want to say like enough said, Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, it was just like abuse after abuse, after abuse. And, and every relationship she had was, was just, you know, decimating to a person's sense of self And, um, you know, she arrived in my clinic, thankfully, with her therapist um, because she had a lot of pain and they wanted that dealt with. And this was like this was my first experience of working with somebody who was in very acute expressions of complex PTSD. I, I did the best that I could. And she had a re-traumatization in the treatment room, um, which was really unfortunate. Of course, she didn't come back. But what I realized from working with this person was there will be people who come in and they present with, like I said, this basic musculoskeletal condition. And you're like, yeah, this is easy. We can work with this. But the problem is, you know, if the musculoskeletal condition is, you know, uh, from XYZ, you're actually having to start over at A, to get them to the point where you can interact with parts of their body that hurt. Mm -hmm. um, Where you can, you know, she couldn't have me stand behind her because she couldn't see me anymore and that was threatening. She couldn't lay down on the table because that positioning was reminiscent of other things that had happened to her. I couldn't touch her neck because of things that had happened to her. So being able to interact with the painful body part, her neck, it wasn't a possibility what we needed to be working on was can you can you let me touch you how long can you tolerate me touching you what is the effect after you've left the appointment, are you still okay when you leave? Or do you find that you start having, uh, you know, maybe you're having flashbacks afterwards. Maybe you're having a lot of other problems. Um, this was a person who was not a candidate for massage therapy and I didn't know how to recognize that at the time, even though she had a problem that massage therapy could help. Um, She wasn't at a point yet where actual provision of massage therapy could happen in a way that was safe for her. So that was like a really difficult lesson for me to learn. I felt terrible that, you know, this person had a flashback of something horrible in my treatment room because of things I was doing with her. Mm -hmm. Um, And I learned how to recognize when somebody is and is not ready um, and how to understand that they're not there yet. And you have a whole lot of other work to do first before you can address that. And the interesting thing when we start learning more about, um, you know, the biopsychosocial aspects of of pain is that there's every possibility that by helping this person just feel okay in their bodies, that pain that seems like it's a big problem may start to dwindle on its own simply right. because they're not so afraid of their own body signals that they can be like, oh, I, it's just normal, you know, my pillow sucks, whatever. Um, but there's there's a lot of work that goes into getting a person there. Uh, and that's certainly not something to be taught in school. But I think that there could be more resources for massage therapists who maybe do find that they're working with populations that... These problems are more common with. Maybe you work in an area where there are a lot of immigrants or refugees. Um, these are probably problems that you're going to encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing how to how to manage the rest of this client case, I think is is um, is an important part of healthcare. Do you
1: think there's a lot of other therapists doing some of the work you're doing? We're quiet,
2: <laughs> but there are. Um, so Pam Fitch is not quiet. She's actually speaking at. Um, the RMTAO conference. Um, she has done most of her practice focused on, um, working with people living with trauma, um, as a body worker, uh, as a massage therapist. And, um, so I connected with Pam, uh, last summer. I actually, I went to BC because they did a symposium on, um, the role of massage therapy and mental health. Um, and Pam talked there and I was like, oh my God, you're from Ontario they're not all in BC. So I connected with her over the phone. And then when I met up with her in person this past January, and along the way, I picked up a couple other people who, uh, who are also kind of working more with this understanding that um, when we touch a person, we're touching a person. Um, And that there may be things happening underneath the skin that we don't know about And we don't need to know about, but if we can at least reserve a little space in our minds that there could be other things happening here, Mm -hmm. Um, we can do more do more justice um, for our work as professionals and for our patients when they come in.
1: Interesting. Sorry to go quiet. Um, no, it's, is,
2: it's a lot to think about. Like, it is a lot to think
1: about. And yeah. it's it's not even, like Mark said, um, you know, since he made that comment about the fact that it is in the curriculum, all I keep thinking about the fact that, yeah, like, I mean, I've obviously been very well aware of this and maybe, and maybe the problem isn't that it's not in the curriculum, it's as you said, people. I think until you hear some of these stories, mm-hmm. until you meet some of these patients,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it doesn't even often cross your mind. Like you said, you have somebody come in and they have a shoulder injury, and you're like, "All right," and you just want to jump in and mm-hmm. fix the shoulder shoulder injury. But there's other shit going yeah, on, totally. and each person is exactly that. it's a whole person. Yeah, it's not just muscles. You know, massage therapists, myself included, probably are guilty of always saying, "You know, someone's on the table," and we just see. We just see muscles.
2: Yeah, anatomy. That's yeah. that's
1: what we do. We see anatomy. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: it's interesting that there's a whole group of therapists I didn't even know of you guys that do this trauma-informed practice. Yeah. And yeah. that's great that there's a place for people to go who might – not otherwise be massage clients because I do teach that in some of the courses that there are people who are – they're not going to be a client of yours Mm -hmm. and part of – one of those people are people that are survivors of trauma or people that are dealing with trauma right now because this act, as you said, of just even going to seek help – That's terrifying. Mm. And then all the things that come along with being in this vulnerable position that you are when you're in a treatment room with a therapist.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, Like I think too about, I don't, uh, I don't really do a lot of MVAs. I would love to do more of them, but HK is like a whole other rant. (laughs) You know, when you've got people who have been in really horrific car accidents, you are, you are dealing with a person's trauma right there. And maybe, maybe somebody in the car accident died. Maybe the person who died was their spouse. Um. That's that's a whole bag of stuff that is coming into the treatment room with you. And on days when they're really grieving, um, their pain is probably going to be worse. They're going to need you to be so much more gentle with them, um, not, just, not just with your hands, but in your conduct with them. They're having an exceptionally awful day. And um, being able to be aware of how their emotional state is going to impact, you know, whether or not they can be receptive, are they going to be irascible in the treatment? I mean, some people when they're, when they're emotionally hurting, they're, they're jerky, they're, they're mean. And it's not because they're trying to hurt you, but because they're in so much pain that they're flailing Yeah, and you kind of just get caught in the shit, hit the fan and you're in the room. Um, and so being able to just kind of let that happen um, and, and, Instead of making them wrong, trying trying to dig deep for, you know, I mean, I personally, I don't know what it's like to be in a car accident. I don't know what it's like to lose someone I love to a violent death. Um, but I have people that I love, and if I picture them being taken from me in in a in a really horrible circumstance, that hurts. I can I can tap into that because I have an active enough imagination that I can I can think of what it would be like to lose that person, and so that's just a taste of what this person's reality is yeah you you have your temper tantrum it's fine let it out and when you're ready we'll get started i've had clients in my treatment room this one guy we joke a lot that his life should be a netflix special because it's just so ridiculous the last few months and in a few appointments he's come in he had an mba and you know he has a history with concussion so he was dealing with a lot of concussion symptoms and then there was a bunch of things going on in his family that it just all happened at the same time and there were appointments where he'd show up and that was the one room where he could fall apart because everywhere else in his life he had to keep it together but he knew if he came to my treatment room he could just he could cry he could let that happen and it was totally okay and we would wait and some times he'd just have to vent for for 30 minutes and I would have to ask like you know I need to know do you need to be here or do you need to be somewhere else like what are we doing here because if you've got to go that's fine and you can go Um, and so just being able to allow that to happen um, changes the dynamic because then they've they've let that emotional content go for a minute and now you can do the work that they're there for and if with this person if I had just kind of Okay. All right. So I'm, I hate to cut you off, but uh, what are we working on today? You sort of force that person to just stuff it back in. And I don't know if anyone listening has ever, you know, I'm like a serial emotional repressor. <laughs> I repress a lot. And um, it's like a physical act. Like you actually feel yourself swallow. You feel yourself hold your body in a way to contain these emotions. And if you're working on somebody's physical self and they're using their bodies to contain all of this other stuff, guess what? You're you're dealing with that first. You're not even able to get to the injuries. So you kind of have to, you know, if you're able to allow that that space for somebody to just kind of, you know, emotionally barf for a minute and then, okay, so now that we've got that out of the way, can we work today? Um, and And that, you know, these are some of the experiences that I've had to work through with some of my clients. I know I feel okay with it, but I've, I feel like it's old hat <laughs> for me. But, but yeah, like it, there's, there's a lot of value in um, being able to acknowledge the full spectrum of a person's experience.
0: How do you think the majority of RMTs handle it? What are you doing so different? Well, you already told us what, you, what you're doing different. What are they needing to do differently?
2: You know what? I, I mean, I don't want to tell other therapists about how they should or shouldn't run their practices. Um no, well you're coming from a place
0: of what might be a larger understanding. So I mm-hmm. mean, I would I would say yeah, uh, say what you got to say.
2: Well, like I I think that um in our scope of practice, you know, we we kind of And maybe this is where our scope of practice um, might need to meet what current science is saying about massage therapy. I don't know. Um, But in terms of, you know, how other RMTs might want to deal with, with these kinds of things. I mean, first of all, not everybody is going to feel comfortable enough. Like this patient and I, we have good rapport. He feels comfortable with me. Mm -hmm. I am quite certain. I can, I can think of a few people that I know are probably dealing with some heavy things that I will never know about. They will not talk to me and that's okay. They don't have to. Um, so it's not that I, I think people should set about trying to draw out the story. And in fact, um, I think that that can impede your work as a massage therapist because you don't have the training to protect yourself from, you know, that secondary trauma. If somebody relays like a really, really horrific story and people have really horrific stories and you're standing there going, oh, my God, oh, my God, I don't know how to cope with that, like – you, we don't have that skill. We don't have that kind of training. That's mm-hmm. where social workers and, and psychotherapists and psychiatrists and maybe some doctors have that kind of training. We don't. So it's not that I think people should be um, setting about trying to get those stories out of people, but rather when it happens, because there there may well be people who will just blurt it out. Mm-hmm. Um Being able to just kind of step back and give yourself the space to ask, Do you think that this is appropriate for you to receive massage therapy right now? Give yourself the space to ask yourself, Can I provide the service this person has come in with after what they just told me? Maybe you can't, and that's okay too. Getting away from this idea that, you know, all we do is manually manipulate a person's body and that's all that's happening in the treatment room because that's not the case like we we know that that's not the case Mm -hmm. um well i think you said it best earlier when you said like just for therapists to be
1: aware that there might be something else mm -hmm. going on and now that the the biopsychosocial model is so talked about, I guess, on social media and and other platforms, then just being aware that you don't know what this person's dealing with. And maybe, um, you know, something you had said about in the beginning about being bullied, like get on the table, get on the table, Mm -hmm. being able as a therapist to get the person to just like slow down for a second and... Even if they don't tell you anything, mm. like you said, you usually have some sort of idea that, okay, there's other stuff going on and being able to just, I guess, be, be really present with each of your clients is probably the easiest way to deal with something like that. Cause you will, you'll have some sort of idea when something else is going on or if you're not getting the full story mm. and you don't have to draw it out of them. Like you mm. said, just do what you feel like they need at the time, what they're telling you they need at the time, their how their body's responding to things and just do the work that they need you to do that day.
2: Like I think about in BC, they've developed um, uh, their professional practice groups um, and they're, they're, I can't remember how many there are. I think there's six um, and one of them is for mental health. One is for pain. Uh, there might be another that's like uh, orthopedics, like surgery and, um, and these are RMTs who have chosen to make that particular realm their focus. Um, here in Ontario, the CMTO, I guess, is kind of determined that that's not appropriate or possible for us. I don't know if I fully understand why that's the case. Um but uh, but that that is apparently it. How, even even though that may be um, the fact of what our scopes of practice will allow, I I sort of try to step back and consider well what what is health? Health is this biopsychosocial thing. What is healthcare? Well, caring for this biopsychosocial experience. Um, though my work may be. In focusing more so on what a person's musculoskeletal system is doing, are they dealing with pain? Um, there's still space for me to uh, acknowledge the other stuff in the room, mm-hmm. um, you know, build my network so that I am connecting with those who can treat some of the other problems that might be in the way, and just learning how to adapt, um, learning how to adapt the work that I do so that when somebody presents to me with a problem, I can meet them. Where they're at, mm-hmm. and help guide them towards the outcome that they're looking for. I, I would say that's what RMTs and any healthcare provider could be doing mm-hmm. is just learning how to adapt to meet the person that is in front of you, where they're at, and help get them from where they're where they are to where they're trying to go. Right.
1: So we're not telling you all to become psychotherapists, but no. Again, just being being aware of seeing the person as an entire person um, for anybody that's listening and wants to read more about the work you do and is interested uh, where do they find you? Where
2: do they find me? Um, well, presently you can look up Jen Fleming, um, I am pretty active now on social media. Um, and uh, we'll be sharing more of the resources that I'm using to develop my practice in this way. Um, I'll be at the conference. So if somebody wants to come say hi to me, I will try not to run away. <laughs> A little bit more on the socially anxious spectrum, but um but yeah, I'm I'm pretty accessible and findable. I tell people I'm googleable. You can google googleable. All right. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else
1: you want to talk about before we wrap up or anything else you want to talk about, Mark? No, I think oh, I'm okay. good. All right. Well, thank you for coming in thank and you talking guys for about this. Me. Sometimes some of the heavier subjects mm. um I, I feel like I don't know what to say, but I really mm-hmm. like what you're doing because it it is very easy to get wrapped up in anatomy when you're mm-hmm. a massage therapist and just focus on what mm-hmm. the person is physically presenting with. And mm-hmm. I think it is really important that you're reminding people and the public that – You know, there's more aspects to your health and Mm. we recognize that and Mm. we're we're good with that. We know how to deal with that, Mm. or some of us do.
2: Mm. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Thanks so much.
0: You have been listening to two massage therapists in a microphone. Peace.